Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, it is good to see you guys again this past week. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news a whole lot lately. I thought this past week in the news was pretty fascinating. Uh, evidently, Paula White was offering a prophetic word about how to defeat your enemies. And the beauty of this thing is there's only $229 you can get the pr prophetic word, right? Uh, so uh, literally, I, uh, that's what it was. It's a prophetic word about how to defeat your enemies for only $229. And, of course, I first read that, and I thought it was like a Babylon Bee article. Like the whole thing was satire or something. You can remove the picture now because I don't want to stare at Paula very long. But um, not that, we, anyway. Um, but I remember reading that article and was like, Okay, is this for real? Are, are we really charged $229 for a prophetic word and that kind of thing? And then sure enough, I, I started reading the rest of the news. It's like, like Newsweek, CNN, Fox News. Anybody else check, catch that out there? Am I alone that read all those, those articles? I happen to pay attention to these things because it has to deal with like ministry world and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here's some of the nonsense that's kind of happening out there. And so I'm reading these different things. I totally thought that the whole thing was a joke. And I get on the website a little bit. She's talking about, hey, your Pharaoh's about to drown. Your Pharaoh's about to drown, church. Come on, jump on this train, $229. I'll tell you how your Pharaoh's going to drown. Uh, your Judas is about to hang himself. And uh, she talked about how $229 is in accordance with 1 Chronicles 22.9. Because evidently God's like a God about numbers, right? And so evidently there, there's the price for this prophecy. Or you can just read God's word and it's right there. But anyway, $229 for 1 Chronicles 22.9. And I got to admit, like I'm reading this article a little bit. I'm kind of going, okay, there's a part of me that's intrigued. Right? I am a pastor, and I'm, I'm very curious about like, what's, what, what the nonsense is that's kind of out there and what we need to overcome here at the church and things of that nature. Um, there's a part of me that's kind of going, hey, you know what, Paula, I kind of get you a little bit. Like, I get, like, there's a part of me that kind of says, hey, uh, you're, you're hitting on one of the most relevant issues we could possibly be talking about. Like, who does not want to know how to defeat the enemies in their life? Like, like we, we know what it's like to have a Judas or a Pharaoh or an Absalom, or somebody like that in your life who's constantly antagonizing you and constantly against you. And so you're always, I'm like, hey, I, I get it. Like, there's this part of me that's intrigued a little bit. Uh, you know, like, we, who wouldn't want to know about how to defeat your enemies whenever you wanted to? And so I'm reading these things and I'm going, okay, like, I, I was intrigued for a good, you know, like 10 seconds. And then, um, and then I realized, oh, yeah, like, David deals with pretty much this exact same thing in Psalm 55 this morning, and the whole thing's free. Like we don't, we, we don't even have to, we don't have to charge you or anything like that. It's just right here. You don't even need to pay the, the bargain basement price of $31 for people that can't afford $229. There's only $31 because $22 plus $9 equals $31, and God is a God of numbers, right? Um, I don't know. If you need reimbursement, we have a benevolence fund. Um, <laughs> we can help. We can help take care of that and stuff. But, but church, like that is what David's dealing with here in this psalm. He's dealing with very much that question, which very many of us are intrigued by. Like, what do you do in betrayal? How do you handle your enemies, people that are out there, maybe it's Pharaoh's, Judas's, maybe it's Absalom's in David's case right here, that are very much against you and are opposing you in a number of different ways? That's the question of this text. I mean, you probably caught this as you were hearing some of these things Psalm, uh, read, but they, like Psalm 55 is a song of a man who's been through this thing of betrayal. He knows what betrayal's like. like. This is the cry of someone who's been stabbed in the back, not only by their friend, by their son, by their army, by the people in the nation of Israel who are flying David's flag saying, hey, he's the greatest king ever. We love you. We're loyal to you. All these different things. Like These are the people that are stabbing him in his back. And so if you are in that place, maybe you have known the sting of betrayal before. Maybe you know what it's like to be gossiped about or lied about or have friends or family members talk about you behind your back. Maybe you know what it's like to be cheated on or tricked or misled or bullied. 
or attacked in any other way, or maybe you simply care about people who've been in that place, even though you've been spared your entire life. If that is you, then Psalm 55 is the psalm for you. It's exactly what David's going to be dealing with this here in this text. And so uh, we, we read about some of the context. We've been here in the context the past few weeks. This is taking place um, a little while after 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so you remember 2 Samuel chapter 12 is this big time in David's life where everything's disrupted. The first part of his life, everything's pain-free. There's favor of God. Things are going really, really well. Then comes the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, all the cover-up, all the lies, all the deceit. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes, calls him out, and exposes David's sin and lets him know, hey, this is just the beginning of the fallout for you. There's going to be a lot of fallout for your family. You don't do those kinds of things and then expect, hey, your family's going to be pain-free. It's going to be completely fine. And so his family begins to unravel in chapter 13. We read about in chapter 13 about how Amnon, one of his sons, ends up falling into this incestuous love of his sister Tamar, and he ends up raping her in chapter 13. Absalom, the other brother in this story, he hears about what takes place. He sees the destruction done to Tamar, and he immediately goes out to Tamar and says that he's furious about what's taken place. And he goes to rescue Tamar, bring her back into her home, and to protect her from this thing. All we read about from David is that David's furious about what's taken place too. However, there's not a whole lot written about what David does in the scenario. We don't know what he does. We just know that, hey, he's feeling very, very angry about what's happened to his daughter and what his son has done against her. And so evidently the implication in this text here is that David evidently does not do enough because about two years later, Absalom is still fuming at the whole thing and Absalom decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to kill his brother. And so it's exactly what he does. Chapter 13, he goes and and he kills his brother um, and then he immediately flees to the city called Gershon because he's so afraid of what David may do to him in retaliation. And so the chapter wraps up and here's David who's grieving over what's taken place against his daughter Tamar at the hands of his son Amnon. He's grieving the loss of his son who's just been killed, and he's grieving the loss of his other son who's run away and has done, the one, who's done that injustice against his son. And so he's grieving, and all we read at the end of chapter 13 is that David wanted to reach out to his son Absalom, who was hiding in Gershon. However, for three years, he failed to do so. And so for three years, Absalom is sitting there in silence, Three years, there's an estranged relationship. Chapter 14 picks up, and Joab comes to King David, and Joab is much like Nathan in this scenario, where he, um, I guess it was a very passive-aggressive culture at that time. No one deals with, they never talk to the king directly and say, hey, David, it's time to go make up with your son. Like, that's how I would have done it. There was no Enneagram 8s in that time, I guess. And so, like, you don't come, and everybody's passive-aggressive, and so Joab kind of creates this, this scenario there to kind of work behind the scenes and to be able to convince David and say, hey, David, essentially, hey, it's time to bring your son home. It's time to reconcile the break, broken relationship with Absalom. And so it works. David, it gets David's attention. He calls Absalom back home after three years of hiding in Gershon. And so he comes back home, but... The sad part is for two years they live together in Jerusalem and they don't even speak to each other. And so here's a father and here's a son, estranged, broken relationship here. 
And for two years, they're living in the same city, and there's no communication between them whatsoever. Again, Joab in chapter 14 comes in. He's like, uh, guys, that wasn't exactly what we meant by reconciliation, right? It's great that you're living in the same city. There's more to it than just, hey, living in the same geographical area and stuff like that. It's time for you to, to kiss and make up, to shake hands and be fine with each other. And so he brings them together, and essentially they do that. They shake hands and say, hey, I'm good. You good? You good? All right, good. That's what men do. We pat each other on the back. I'm good. Yeah, let's fine. We'll just, let's just forget about it. Um, evidently, it's a little bit too late, right? It's been about five years since Absalom has killed his son, uh, killed his brother at Amnon, and about five years at this point since he's talked to this father, David. By this time, there's all this bitterness, there's remorse, there's anger, there's fury, uh, there's resentment towards his father, David. And in chapter 15, we read that Absalom begins conspiring against his father, David, in order to take over the throne. And so that's what he does. Absalom's there. David's still got the throne. Absalom's working behind the scenes. And we read about in chapter 15, Absalom had this great plan where he would go and he would, uh, he would stand outside the temple gates. And as people came in to talk with David or a judge in order to judge their situation and help them get some wisdom on how to resolve it, Absalom would kind of stir the pot. And he would start spreading all these lies about David. He would start uh, taking over responsibilities, hiding things. Essentially, he's grooming the people to take over the throne. And so it's exactly what takes place. He's turned the hearts of the captains in the army. He's turned the hearts of the people. He's turned the hearts of some of David's loyal followers and stuff like that. And so when the day comes when Absalom's ready to take things over, David's in trouble. He's laying in bed, he wakes up, and he hears the rumors, Absalom is coming into town, he's going to have my head, he's trying to kill me, he's trying to take my throne, but by that point in time, it's all too late, because no one's, there's very, very few people left standing with David, and so David does what I think probably any of us would have done, he stands up, and he flees, and he goes to the mountaintops, it says that he takes off, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, and it says here in verse 30 of chapter 15, it says that as he flees to the Mount of Olives, he says, he goes weeping as he went. He is weeping and he is mourning the betrayal that he's experiencing at this time the entire time. It says barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him, they covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. Verse 31, it says, then it was told to David, hey, Ahithophel, Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, Ahithophel was David's best friend. This is the guy that he was with. This is David's right-hand man. Uh, we read a little later on in the chapter um, that, that Ahithophel's Wisdom and counsel was as if you were speaking to the Lord. That's how much he trusted Ahithophel, um, which is probably problematic in and of itself, right? And rumor is Ahithophel didn't charge $229 for it either. Anyway, um, but like that's how, that's how close this relationship was. Like he, there, was, there was closeness and there was trust. They were best friends. And Ahithophel's wisdom and stuff was, was as if he were speaking to God. And so he finds out, hey, Ahithophel, it's not just Absalom who's trying to kill you. Ahithophel's joined him. Your best friend is out there doing the same thing too. And so David says, he says, oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Which is essentially the exact same thing that he prays in verse 9 when he says, destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. In other words, like this is the setting in which David writes this psalm. It's while he's fleeing what's taking place with his son, it's while he's running away at the betrayal of his best friend, it's while he's afraid for his life, that he, while he flees to the mountains there in the mountain of olives, that he pens the, the lyrics to this psalm right here in Psalm 55. And so that's the setting for what's going on. Church, can we just take one minute and just think about the sting of betrayal that David's feeling in this moment? I don't know that you and I can fully understand what it would be like to be, maybe you do know what it's like to be betrayed by a best friend. You, you know what that's like a little bit. 
Maybe it is by a family member or a son. David's got the entire thing going against him, and they're not only trying to talk bad about him, they're trying to kill him, take his life, and steal his throne. And so what we read in the first, really a full first half of this psalm, I, the whole first half is really a description of the sting of betrayal. That's what this is. It's the emotions. It's the pain. Like This is very, very real. This is a man who is grieving, a man who is sad, a man who has been betrayed, a man who is feeling like the entire world is coming against him right here. And so for the first half of the psalm, I mean, you're just getting the whole process of the sting of betrayal. Like there's desperation in verse 1. He says in verse 1, he says, Give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me. Answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I'm moaning. In other words, like I can't sleep. I'm restless, I'm complaining, I'm moaning, I need help. I'm desperate for you to come and to do what I can't do for myself. Like there's desperation here. He's pleading for mercy. Like there's a desire for retreat in verse six. That's what he says. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. He wants to get out of there. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away. I would be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would run, I'd get out of here. That's what he's saying right there. There's a desire for retreat in the middle of this thing. I don't know, uh, how many of you guys have heard the old, old hymn, um, I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly away. Um, when I, I don't know the words of the song. I can't sing that. Um, you know that song? We sing it all the time. It's a beautiful song. It, it's upbeat, and it's a, song about, um, it's a song about desiring to be in the presence of God. I'll fly away. When I can't wait to be in the presence of God, to be with you and to see you there. Many of the ancient hymnals, they used to put a little, a little uh, subscript in that hymnal next to that song and write Psalm 55 next to it, which is not where that song comes from. That song's upbeat. That song is hopeful about being in the presence of Jesus. This song is lamenting and mourning. So when you read Psalm 55, you need to be thinking Forrest Gump here. You remember Jenny, the opening scene of the famous movie Forrest Gump? I, I, she's got in this horrific family. She's got an abusive father. She's afraid for her life. She flees to the, she flees to the fields. And she's out in the fields and she prays out to God, Dear Lord, make me a bird so that I can fly far, far, far away. And you remember that heartbreaking scene, right? Like that's exactly the emotion of David in this psalm. He's saying, God, make me a bird so that I can fly out of here. Get me out of here. If I could flee to the wilderness, I would go and I would flee to the wilderness. Church, like, there's confusion. There's the confusion of the betrayal that's going on here in verse 12. He says, if it were an enemy who did this, I could bear that. It's not an adversary. It's not an enemy he's doing this. This is, a, this is my best friend. This is flesh. This is my son. This is my, my own flesh and blood. He's saying, if this is somebody I didn't know, hey, no big deal. If it were somebody I hated, they hated me, hey, I can deal with that. This is someone I loved. Like, this is, I, I don't understand this. this. is what he's saying right here. It's you, verse 13, he says, a man. You're my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Church, I hope you're seeing the grieving that's taking place here in David. He said, we used to do sweet counsel in the house of God together. We did ministry together, bro. Like, we were friends. I loved you. I trusted you. We studied God's word together. We served him together. Like, that's who this is. I don't understand how this is taking place. How in the world could you do this to me? Like, that's what he, like, it's a deep, 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 lasting wound that's taking place. Finally, there's a desire for retribution in verse 15. And again, he's taking us through the whole process there of this thing of betrayal. It says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. What's he saying there? He's saying, they can go to hell for all I care. And it's not anything he, he should be saying, but what we see in the Psalms, which I hope you appreciate, is that the Psalms are real. The Psalms are the heart of a man, the heart of someone who's crying out to the Lord saying, hey, I need help here. I'm, I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm, I'm broken. I need justice. I need salvation. I need you to come and do for me what I can't do for myself. And so he's desiring retribution. He's angry about what's taking place. 
And so he says, let death steal over them, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. In other words, he's ticked. He's calling, on the, he's calling upon the full wrath of God. And, and granted, like, David's not, David's not innocent in this whole thing, is he? Like, David's not innocent in this thing. I mean, he's probably sitting there going, okay, maybe if he were thinking well about this, he'd go, hey, there's a lot of different things I should have done differently. I was a terrible father. I was a terrible husband, right? I'm actually a murderer. I know what betrayal is like because I walked through betrayal. I was the betrayer, right? Like, it's not that, I have, that I'm innocent. I probably should have put my foot down and been a little bit more than angry when it came to my daughter Tamar and what happened to her. I should probably should have been going out and as passionate about justice then on her behalf as I'm passionate about justice now on my behalf, right? So it's not that he's necessarily innocent right here, but he's still feeling this thing and this betrayal, and he's saying, Lord, I need retribution. I need you to come in and to bring justice to this entire situation. Like, he's furious and he's angry. But I want you to notice where he takes this anger, because the entire first half of this is the emotions. It's the raw emotions of what it is like to be in this thing of betrayal. But then all of a sudden in 16, it seems like there's a line in the sand here in the psalm where all of a sudden what was taking place right there, it changes. And he remembers something there. There's this kind of this pregnant pause here in the psalm. And he says in verse 16, he says, but here it is. I call to God and the Lord will save me. I utter my complaints morning, noon, and night, and he hears my voice. In other words, it seems like all of a sudden in the middle of his grieving, he's run out of tears. It seems like in the middle of all of his frustration and agony, crying out to the Lord, crying out for help, it seems like he's got nothing else to say. All of a sudden, he's come to the end of his rope, and all of a sudden, he remembers that it's the Lord who hears our cry. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's not immovable. He's not deaf to your cries. He is a God who is imminent and near, has, has a heart full of compassion and mercy, and in that mercy, he draws near. He hears our prayers, and he actually saves. And so he builds up this confidence right here, understanding, hey, all of a sudden I remember that's who my God is. He's not far away. He actually comes into my situation and he brings salvation, not just for all of eternity, not just fire insurance for that day, one day still future, but he actually comes into our situations today in such a way as to deliver and to save. Crawford Lawrence is a, is a pastor up north. I love his ministry quite a bit. He tells the story of the worst week of his life. I think it was around 2002 or 2003. But he says that the week started off with news about a death in the family. And so that's heavy enough. He's grieving that. The next day comes and there's a ma major financial crisis in his own retirement and, and everything going on. They lost tons of, tons of money, lost tons of, he would have to be working a little bit longer than he thought he was going to. And then he talks about getting another diagnosis from someone else in the family. That's come in. Then he talks about a news story that came in and and it had nothing to do with him except for the fact that he was the pastor of the church and, and things, he, there was responsibility there and he's grieving over this thing. And he goes, at the end of that week, I was just unbelievably heavy. And he says, I'm a kind of man and I'm walking around the home and I got to this point where I was so embarrassed about what I was feeling and I was so feeling so heavy. I didn't want the rest of my family to see my grief and my tears. And so I locked myself in my master bedroom and I just got down on my knees and I started crying to the Lord. And he goes, I'm not a crying kind of guy. I'm not like, me, right? But like, I, he's like, I'm not a crying guy. And so like, he was like, I was heartbroken and I was just weeping and weeping and saying, why God, why God? Pleading out for his help and for intercession and things of that nature. And he goes, finally, I came to this point in time, I had nothing else to say. I was worn out and I was exhausted and I just laid there. And so I picked up the Bible and he says, I opened up to Psalm chapter three. And I remember that one of my friends wrote, a, wrote the lyrics to the song from Psalm chapter three. And so he goes, I started singing this psalm out loud. The Lord, thou, my Lord, is a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. 
And he starts singing this, how my Lord is a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. In other words, that's who you are. In other words, that's who you are. You are the lifter of my head. You are my glory. You are a shield about me. You are a protector. You are a provider. You come and you intercede. You are the one that lifts up my head. And he says, as clear as day, I could feel the Lord saying to me, Crawford, I know you don't know what to do in the middle of this situation, but I know what to do. Crawford, I know that you're distraught, and I know that you're in despair, and I know that your world is crumbling around you right now, but I've been down this road before. I know what's going on. I know how to intervene. And he says in the middle of that time, God just entered into these songs, and all of a sudden he began to believe the different things that he was clinging to in faith. Church, it's exactly what's taking place here with David. There's all this raw emotion. There's a desire for retribution. There is the feelings of being crushed and, and, um, and betrayed by people that were close to him and that love him. And all of a sudden he is clinging to uh, this God and he is remembering his past faithfulness in his life. He's remembering that, hey, when I was a boy, you chose me rather than my other brothers to be the king of Israel. You remember, like, you, were always, you have always been with me. You were with me out in the fields when the lions and the bears tried to attack my sheep. You were always with me. You were with me with Goliath, like, like David and Goliath. Like, you were with me in that season. You were with me when Saul was trying to come after me and take my life. You've always been with me. And so he's remembering, hey, you were the God who was with me even during this covenant. You made a covenant with me that my kingdom would be established forever and ever. And so all of a sudden, he is remembering and holding on to the fact that that's who my God is. He's a God who intervenes. He's not a God who stays far away. He's a God who intervenes, and with that in mind, he cries out to the Lord because he knows that he, knows that he saves. He, he remembers, say, hey, this is a God who saves. He comes into these things. He redeems, he renews, and he saves, and he breathes life into these things. Either he's going to bring me out of this situation altogether entirely, or he's going to work his ways in and through a broken situation to redeem my soul and to bring me into safety. But either way, I know that's what God does. He comes in, and he brings healing. He brings redemption, and he intervenes in the middle of these dark, betraying times. And so things change for David. And all of a sudden, there's all, this, there's all this sadness and despair, and it turns into confidence here in verse 17. And so he, he continues on, and I want you to notice what he says here. He says, morning, noon, and night, I utter my complaint, and I moan, and God hears my voice. Now, I want you to notice how he saves. Here's how God saves in this situation. He says this, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. In other words, like, God actually cares about my safety. In other words, God actually cares about my safety. When, when I'm surrounded by enemies, when I'm surrounded by these different people that want to take my life, that want to do me harm, he actually cares about my safety. I mean, that's exactly what he just said. All throughout this psalm, he is crying out for the mercy of God. He is pleading for the mercy of God. And it reminds him that, hey, because God is a merciful God, because he is an imminent God, God actually cares about my safety here. First thing that he prays is for mercy in verse 1. He says, Lord, like, don't hide from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. Like, I need mercy in this situation. Like, I know that you're a merciful God. Be merciful to me. Bring me out of this thing and save me. In verse 5, like, he's terrified for his life. Horror overwhelms me, he says. Horror surrounds me. Verse 6, he, pray, he says, dear Lord, make me a bird that I can fly far, far away. Get me out of this situation. So church, it's exactly what David does. I mean, he gets out of there and he flees to the Mount of Olives. Why? Because he can redeem you. He can redeem your soul from a place of safety. And the reality, church, is that some of us need to hear that today because the betrayal that you've experienced and the betrayal that you're experiencing possibly even today it may even feel a lot like what David's going through. Horror surrounds you day by day. 
you're terrified for your life. You're in, a, you're in an abusive marriage. You're in an abusive relationship. You're in an abusive family. And now your heart's in anguish within you. The terrors of death, they've actually fallen over you. Fear and trembling is your life. And horror overwhelms you all the time. And what David's showing us is that if that is your experience, in as much as you're in this abusive relationship, an abusive marriage, not just a difficult one, but one that's damaging and harmful and hurtful and all those different kinds of things, in as much as you are in that kind of a thing, what David's showing us is that sometimes it is the best thing that, best thing that you can do is flee and get safe. Even though God loves marriage. Because some of us are sitting here kind of going, okay, well, but Aaron, I, I, even if you're married, the, fir, the best thing to do is to get safe. But I thought that he loves marriage, and I thought that he hates divorce. He absolutely loves marriage. I mean, the, 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 the picture of our marriage is of a faithful, loving God. That's what our marriage is supposed to illustrate, that, that God is a loyal, faithful God who loves his bride, the church, and gave up his life for the flourishing of the church. It's why any picture that's going to distort that faithfulness of the Father that love of the father for his bride is damaging. It's the seriousness of what we're talking about here in a, being in an abusive situation. He's absolutely serious about your marriage. He absolutely loves your marriage. You know what he loves more than your marriage? He loves you. He loves the image bearer. He loves the one that's in that situation that's crying out for help. He loves the one that's desperate for the God who intervenes to come and intervene. He loves that person. He hears their cries. He hears all those different cries. He loves the one who he knew in, in your mother's womb, the one that he numbered the hairs upon your head, the one that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die for, that you may be redeemed and have life with him for all of eternity. It's exactly why, church, it is okay to be, flee and get safe so that he can redeem your soul in safety. And some of you, church, we, we need to hear that today because your situation is not just a physical situation, but it's, it's full of other kinds of issues that are going on, not just the physical, but it's the emotional, it's the spiritual abuse that's taking place, which makes you feel like there is nowhere for you to go. I mean, it's the, it's the people that twist God's word and say, hey, you know what? Um, God loves marriage, he hates divorce, you have nowhere to go, you can't get out of this situation. And for some of us, you're in that situation, maybe it's matters of headship, maybe it's God's love for this, that, and the other, while conveniently the, the abuser sits there and conveniently forgets about the fact that God also hates religious hypocrisy. He hates abuse. He hates this kind of horrific behavior that's taking place inside of a relationship. He hates people that are going to take, that are going to come into this situation and manipulate the situation to keep someone in this place of being abused. Some of you need to hear that because it is the situation that you're in. I'll never forget the call we got about a little over a year ago, and this person has given me um, freedom to share her story as much as we possibly can without sharing her name or anything. I'm just going to call her Sally for the sake of it. They had left the church a little while before that, gotten married, moved a little bit, and um, she was now calling us from this ministry called Safe Haven in Tarrant County. It's set up to help victims of domestic violence, and so we get a call from her. She'd talked to some other people in the church already. And we started asking her, okay, what's going on in your situation? And she begins to describe what was taking place behind the scenes that no one else knew about. She starts talking about the escalation of abuse. The, at first, it's all the emotional manipulation. It's all the, the gaslighting, the horrific verbal abuse. 
It's all about I hate you, no, I love you. I hate you, no, I love you. I hate you, but I can't live without you kind of stuff. It's all the, it's all the hey, you're lucky to be like someone like me because no one else would love you in the world. Sounding familiar at all? It's all that kind of stuff. It's all the I hate you and all the bad language and stuff that comes along with it that we can't even repeat here from the front. She begins how to tell me how that abuse begins to escalate over time and how it quickly turns into, into physical abuse. We kept in touch throughout the legal process, throughout the court dates, um, as the police were involved and things like that. And I want to read you this section of an email that she sent me recently, which, again, she's allowed me to share and she's encouraged me to share with different people. But she says this. She says, Aaron, obviously there's a lot more details to my story that I don't have time to share. Uh, but I do want to share this. She says, while the abuse progressed from verbal to emotional and psychological to horrific physical abuse during the time that I lived with my abuser, the hardest abuse that I've had to recover from was by far his grotesque use of spiritual abuse. The physical abuse has left scars, an absurd amount of hospital visits, and one major surgery behind me. But I kid you not, Aaron, the spiritual abuse was by far the most excruciating kind of pain. Using the word of God to manipulate me and keep me in a passive, submissive place only to abuse me more is something that there is no support for and many believers don't even know exists. And so we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. We don't recognize it when we hear it. And what ends up happening is that way too many survivors feel guilty for wanting to be safe. But, it, but here it is. It's, it's here in safety that I finally have been able to heal. And before you and I start, start thinking to ourselves, hey, that's, that's a very, very narrow application right there. This isn't really my issue, Aaron. Like, you need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, church, it absolutely is your issue. We're talking about sisters. We're talking about moms. We're talking about sons. We're talking about brothers. We're talking about daughters. We're talking about believers within the body of Christ in which you are a part of who are suffering silently and crying out for help and that are needing the God who saves, in which we are the hands and feet of Jesus to come in and to do something on their behalf. Church, don't deceive yourself into thinking, hey, this isn't my issue. Like, it's absolutely your issue. It's people that you know. It's people that are around you. It's people that you're related to. It's people that are in your life group that are saying that there's problems, but they're not able to fully articulate the depth of the problem. I don't deceive yourself into thinking, hey, this is just a small minority of people. I can't tell you the number of stories that we've heard, people in the past that have experienced this currently that are dealing with this. The numbers are excruciating. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that this is not your issue. It's absolutely your issue, church. Like we're talking about men being willing to call out their friends long before it ever gets to the point of physical abuse. We're talking about men having the courage to stand up and to be able to discern certain things that are going on and saying, not on my watch. We're talking about things like changing a culture. We're talking about being a different kind of church that is actually safe for those who are vulnerable and abused. Like we're talking about listening to people that are crying out and that don't know how to fully articulate the full extent of what's going on. Church, we're talking about being the hands and feet of Jesus. We're talking about being men and women that are willing to listen to the cries of people in our community and saying, you know what, I'm willing to go the extra mile to make sure that they're safe. I'm willing to take them to the shelter. I'm willing to invite them into my home. I'm willing to help them find a counselor. I'm willing to pay for them and to help them get set up for maybe for a hotel or I'm, I'm willing to help them find a job. I'm willing to help them have financial means to help them get back up on their feet again. 
Like we're talking about being a different kind of church that does that kind of thing. So please, 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 church, do not make the mistake of thinking, hey, this isn't really about you. It absolutely is your issue. We have to remember that he can absolutely redeem the worst kinds of betrayal. But here it is, church. He largely does it from a place of safety. We're not talking about giving up. We're talking about going and getting safe and then praying and trusting God to come and to do the incredible things that he does. He redeems and he restores and he renews. He breathes life into dead things all the time, but doing it from a place of safety, recognizing he is a merciful, merciful God. David did not question whether or not it was right for him to run. He got out of there and he got safe. And from that place of safety, he saw that his soul was being redeemed in that thing. And church, I can't help but believe that there's someone here today that needs to hear, go and get safe. Go and get safe. Even if you're married. Even if you're married. We will pray for healing. We will pray for redemption. We will not give up. We will walk with you along the way. But go and get safe. Because he does some incredible work from those places of safety. He keeps going. And I love how his confidence builds, because it does. He, he's crying out, and there's, there's this turmoil, and then there's this confidence. He comes, he intervenes, and he saves. And in verse 18, he says, yeah, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. And then he says, God is going to give ear to them, and he's going to humble them. That's who my God is. God gives ear to my cry, and he will humble the enemy. In other words, he's reflecting upon the fact that, hey, he is a God who is just. He cares about the injustice done against me even more than I care about it myself. He sees evil in ways that I can't even discern myself. He knows what's right and wrong in ways that I'm never going to be able to understand myself. That's who my God is. He is a God who is perfectly holy. He is perfect in all of his love. He is also perfect in all of his justice. And so he's looking at this God who is perfectly just in all these ways, and he's saying, hey, I have confidence now. I'm going to cry out to him. I'm going to ask him to come and to save and to intervene because I know that's what he does. He hears my cry. He intervenes, and he humbles them. That's what he says in 9. Destroy, O oh God. Divide their tongues. Make them confused. Confuse the plans of the enemy, my oppressor, my abuser, my betrayer. Mess up their life. Make it confusing for them. Make it confusing for, the, like, thwart their plans, church. Like, what David's doing here is he is pulling on history with God. He is remembering this is what God does. Like, Genesis chapter 11, uh, the Tower of Babel, he literally divided people's tongues up so that they would not be able to build this giant, massive idol uh, uh, that, would replace the, the, that would replace the Lord. That's literally what he, he confuses their tongues, makes their plans go to crud. They're not able to do anything. He divides their tongues. He's just saying, hey, don't let their plans be successful. Ahithophel. Absalom, I love them. There's grace for them. Don't take their life, he tells his army later on. Don't take their life, but confuse their plans. Confuse their plans. Like he knows that he is a God who is just, and because he's just, he'll come and he'll fight on his behalf. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus is going to say the same thing. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. In other words, it's the DNA of God. He intervenes in these things. The ones who need to be lifted up, he lifts up. The ones who need to be brought down and humbled, he will come in and he will humble them. And you can just see this, this confidence building in, in, in David right here, knowing that's who my God is. He can fight on my behalf. I'm not alone in this battle here. Even though I feel alone on this mountain at the Mount of Olives over here, I'm not actually alone in this because my God saves and my God fights on my behalf. Like, I know that's what he does. He's a just God. He cares about what's happening to me even more than I care about it myself. He can come in and do incredible things that I could never predict or even plan for myself. That's who he is. I mean, it's a testimony of God throughout the entirety of Scripture, is it not? 
I mean, Joshua chapter 6, or let me go to Exodus 14. Um, Israel's being taken out of Egypt. They're standing at the edge of the Red Sea. Uh, the, the enemy's pressing in behind them. Moses says this. He says, uh, he's telling the people just before they cross the Red Sea, which is about to part right there, right? In, in Exodus 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you if only you would be still. Someone need to hear that today? The Lord will fight for you if only you would be still. What does he do? He, it's exactly what he does. He parts the Red Sea. They go across dry land. The enemy's crushed and destroyed. God provides in the wilderness food, manna, water, the, the entire thing. God provides, church. He provides. It's a testimony of God throughout the entirety of Scripture. Joshua chapter 6, uh, the, the battle at Jericho. Church, that is the worst battle plan that I've ever heard of in my life. You remember this story? You remember reading this? I remember as a kid, I was like, wait, say, say that again, Mom. What, they did what? They won a battle by, uh, literally, God comes to Joshua and he says, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant, take it in front of the people. You're going to march around these walls silently for six days in a row. On the seventh day, I want you to do it seven times around there. And then I just want you to stop and start shouting. Just start yelling at the top of your lungs. I'm going to take care of the rest from there. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm, I'm picturing like a Monty Python episode or something. Like that. They're standing at the walls and just like, ah! You know, I mean, like, that's it. And God's like, I'll take care of it from there. And it's exactly what he does. Like the walls go down, God provides, he intervenes. Like he's a just God. Church, he knows how to fight for his people. Chapter 10, it's the same thing. Lord says to Joshua, do not be afraid of your enemy. I've given them into your hands. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Here it is, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. In other words, the Lord intervened, and the enemy was so confused. They were so blinded by what's going on. Like it was an easy, easy victory. The Lord threw them into confusion. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the, from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Did you hear what he just said? Okay, again, this is Monty Python stuff. I'm imagining the Israelites going out there to battle, and they've got these swords, and they're trying to stab, and they just keep missing them. They're like, oh, I, can't, I can't do this right here. And then all of a sudden, they're struck by a piece of hail, and, and boom. Like, that's what's happening right here. God is intervening on behalf of his people, and he is delivering them from their enemies in that time. Church, it is a testimony of God from beginning to end. He is a just and holy God who comes and fights for his people. Chapter 12, it's the same thing. Literally, he makes the sun stand still. So Israel could finish the job and inherit the land. Church, it's who he is. He's a God who listens to your cry and will intervene and he will fight on your behalf. In as much as you are on his team, in as much as you are on his side, you are walking with him. He will intervene and he will fight on your behalf for the sake of justice. I love Dr. Lewis Baldwin in his book about the prayer life of Martin Luther King Jr. He talked about how Dr. King was able to be so peaceful in the middle of so much opposition in his world because he constantly meditated not only upon the grace and the forgiveness of God, but upon the justice of God and the fact that God is, the fact that God was and is perfectly just and that Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter two, he says that's what he said, gave him the confidence that no matter how hard things got, he would never be fighting alone. So David just remembers and he says this is who he is. He's just, he fights on our behalf. And because he's just, I, I can actually rest. There's a little bit of rest, church, that just knowing that that's who he is, that he'll come and he'll fight on your behalf. He's a God who saves by fighting for his people. So he wraps it all up in verse 22 with this, the one little admonition in the entire psalm. He simply says, cast all your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Which is a little frustrating for someone like me who wants to immediately be delivered out of the difficulty of a situation rather than being sustained and in through it. But again, sometimes that's just what he wants to do. Sometimes he's going to save you out of a situation altogether, take you out of it. But most of the time, 
He's going, to, he's going to take you into a place of safety, and then from that place of safety, he will fight on your behalf. And so many of the, so many of the times, he's going to be working in and through that, different, that situation that you're in right then and there. And he's going to sustain you along the way in order to give you a brand new life, in order to give you a brand new testimony, in order to give you brand new freedom, or in order to give you brand new meeting, whatever this next chapter of your life is going to look like. So David very, very simply says, the only thing that he says to do in this psalm, cast your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. And I just wonder if someone needs to hear that simple admonition today. You can cast those burdens. You can cast that betrayal upon him. And you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt he will meet you in that time and place. He will carry you through it. And he will sustain you. And that if he's not taking you out of the thing altogether, which sometimes he does, sometimes he takes you out of it, kind of a little bit like he is with David, like he was with our, our friend Sally I was talking about a little bit, little bit ago, you can rest easy knowing that sometimes when you are in it still, he will redeem and he will work within you in order to save you in and through that different situation, but he will always, always, always work the same. One of my favorite things about Sally's story that she's shared and, and has asked me to, to share with you guys today talking with her even this past week, and, um, and I was just saying, hey, we're about a year and a half or so removed from everything breaking apart in your life. Um, you're safe now. There's legal process taking place. She's doing so, so well in so many different ways, and I just said, hey, will you, what would you say, how have you seen God working in your life over the past couple of years? How would you describe that kind of a thing? And she laughed a little bit, and she goes, uh, Aaron, that's kind of a huge question. She's like, if, uh, if I were to write about all that God's been doing in my life, it would be a whole new book. And I was like, oh, something to think about. Um, and so, but she said this. She says, here's what I would have the church know. There's never been a day that I was not assured of the Lord's presence or that he loved me and would always take care of me. Even during the worst of my attacks, when I believed that I would physically die at the hand of my husband, I still knew the Lord was there. There were many days I was literally on my knees begging him to hold me and protect me. And looking back on my story, I can see now that he always has. He never promised me a life that was free of abuse. The reality of our free will means that some people will choose to abuse, as my husband has. But he has promised to carry us, to protect us, and to sustain us. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, he has never left my side. He's dried many a tear. He's answered many a prayer. And he's held me countless times. He is my rock. He is my provider. He is my protector and he is my pastor. She said, I'm here flourishing and alive today because he is a God who redeems. He has taken my pain and he has molded into a gift beyond anything that I could imagine. I am not broken anymore. So I know that part of my redemptive story is that now that I am closer to being fully healed physically, spiritually, and emotionally, I'm now able to pay it forward and help people who are in the same situation I was about a year and a half ago. So she says, yes, yes, yes. Use my story and tell it. Use it to help whoever needs it in the church. She says, there's no ask I would not consider, so please let people know I'm available to talk and help if they need someone to reach out to. Church, he saves. He redeems the broken. He hears the cries that you're going through in the middle of your betrayal. He's not distant. He's not deaf. To those cries. He's not unmoving. He hears them all and he comes and he says, Sometimes he brings you completely out of the situation altogether. Sometimes it's partial 
bringing you out and leading you in, kind of like it is with David and this woman. Sometimes he'll save you in and through that situation so that he can give you a brand new life and a brand new testimony and brand new meaning for this next chapter in your life. I don't know what the betrayal may be that you were thinking about at the beginning of this message. Maybe you were stabbed in the back by a friend. Maybe it was a business partner. Maybe it's a family member or something like that. Maybe you're kind of like David and you're afraid for your life and it has to do with relatives and people who are close to you. Maybe you are in that abusive relationship. Maybe you've had it pretty good and you're sitting here going, and going, hey, you know what? I've been spared of this kind of thing. This is not my personal story. However, I do care about the body of Christ. Other people cry, I cry with them. Other people need help, I go and I help with them. And you, you understand that thing. Whatever it may be, church, my prayer for us today is that we would simply listen to David and we would cast our burdens upon the Lord, knowing that he will sustain you today. And some of you need to take that theological premise and just make it personal to you right now. And you need to bring it in and say, not just... Not just hypothetically, no, no, no. I need to actually today, right now, I need to take these burdens, this betrayal, the sting that I've been feeling for so long, and I need to cast them on the Lord. And I need to ask him to intervene on my behalf and to sustain me today. Church, it is your issue. It is your issue. It's all of your issue. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus. May we be a safe place for people that are crying out for help. And may we see the redemptive healing of God come into play all over the city. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Father, we.